We love you. We bless you, God, for friendships um, at synagogues and at churches where people give us home and give us a place to meet and um, join us as brothers and sisters. We're thankful for Highway. Uh, we're thankful for Ace Lane as they celebrate today together as a community. And we're thankful for every person here that as we join hands together, as we join our hearts and our minds and open ourselves up to you in this place and in this midst, um, that we are drawn closer to you and to one another. And Jesus, we bless you for that and ask that we would be changed as a result of our study and our worship of you through the word today. It's in your name. Amen. All right. Do not despair. That is the title of today's message. And we'll be diving right into Numbers chapter 13 and 14. So let's go with the text. Now, as we go into this text, I'm going to actually, it's a large chunk. So I'm going to stop in the middle of the reading several times to just give you a couple of notes of interest, and then we'll try to take the text as a whole and look at it together and see what it might speak to us today. So Numbers chapter 15, verses 14. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, Canaan, which I'm giving to the Israelites, and from each ancestral tribe send one of its leaders. We're just going to stop right there. I'm going to get my car into text and I'll stop. Did the Lord actually send the spies? Did the Lord command Moses to do that? Well, according to Numbers, yes, but if we get to Deuteronomy, no. Deuteronomy chapter 22 through 23, all of you came to me and said, let us send men ahead of us to explore the land for us and bring back a report for us regarding the route by which we should go up and the cities we will come to. And the plan seemed good to me, Moses says. Um, and I selected 12 of you, one from each tribe. Now, these are two differing accounts of the same event. And the reason why it gets debated a little bit is because of what's going to happen. These 12 tribes, uh, representatives of these 12 tribes, these 12 spies, are going to go up and into the land of Canaan. And as they get to that land of Canaan, they're going to come back with a report. And their report is going to cause the people of Israel to freak out. And as a result, then they will get on a 40-year timeout. They're not going to get into the land. So I think it's kind of interesting that years later, as Deuteronomy is written, whether it's written down by Moses or written later on as the oral tradition that Moses hands down to us, um, that there's two different reasons why this happens. Did God send us, and then it was our disobedience, and that's why we're in this moment, or did we send ourselves and we weren't really supposed to go there at all? And it caused me to ask the question, I wonder what would happen if they just started walking. Right? And they didn't have a group that went ahead and said, let's look and freak out about how big or bad it might be. I have no answer for you. I just think it's an interesting thing that our text has that Back to Numbers. <laughs> when Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, go up then through the Negev and into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, whether they are few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How's the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. And it was the season for the first ripe grapes. So what season would that be, anybody? Kind of now. Grapes um, are ripening and they're going to bring back figs and pomegranates, which are ripening right now. Um, just the last month, two months, and we'll come into so it's sort of probably like maybe August, definitely September, October. 
So they went and explored the land from the desert of Zin, the wilderness of Zin there, as far as Rehov toward Lebo Hamath. They went up through the Negev, came to Hebron, where Ahiman, Shishai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived. Hebron had been built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. So I just want to stop for one second again and say that they are actually in what today we would say are the modern boundaries of modern Israel. They're in the wilderness or desert of Zin. For those of you who hiked with us in Israel, we spend a day in the wilderness of Zin. It's uh, Wadi Zin Avdat. It's where I made you climb a crazy ladder up and out of the... Anybody remember? Crazy? Okay, great. So that is part of this story. They're in that area, but it's not quite what we would probably call like the promised land. There's not a lot... There's no figs, pomegranates, or grapes growing in that part of the land. It's very desert, right? It's... It's the Negev. But as they go then from the Negev, which is going to be part of what God gives God's people and what God promises Abraham, they're going to go through Hebron, which if you'll recall, every patriarch is buried there and the wives save Rachel. So this is an important place. It's a place where Abraham belongs. It's a place where the Israelites and their descendants belong. Hebron is the place of Israel. They have connection to this land. As they go then up, they're moving them through the circle down below the Negev, the Kadosh Barnea. This is where they are, which is within the current boundaries of modern Israel, and also the ancient boundaries given to Israel. And they're going to go up to the sort of oval that's going north-south, and that's where Moses is sending them. Get to the hill country. Tell me what that's like. And that's where these crops can be found, where the street came from. So, when they reached the valley of Shkol, they cut off a branch growing a single cluster of grapes, and two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and some figs. This is now, by the way, the symbol of tourism in modern Israel. Um, two people carrying grapes. So if you're looking for a tourism office in Israel, you're going to look for that symbol, which is just so fun. When you go there, you're like, oh, Bible stories all over the place. I'm just driving down the road, signs for Bethlehem. Great. Things that you've read all your life in your Bible, and it's an exit off the freeway. So um, here they are. They've got so many grapes, and the grapes are so big that they, they need two guys to carry them. Now, you guys maybe grabbed some grapes on the outside before you came in. Small, typically, yes? Okay. Not typically the type of bounty. It's not like cluster of bananas, right? Grapes. So big, you've got two people carrying them, and then they bring back also pomegranates and figs, again indicating the time of year. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there, and at the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. So now the Israelites have been hanging out in the wilderness of Zin, that desert is in, for 40 days, waiting for the report of these spies to come back, these 12 emissaries coming back with this report. And remember in the Bible, whenever we run across the word 40 or the number 40, we can think to ourselves, this is about a period of testing or sort of of finding out what is there, knowledge, all of that. It doesn't have to necessarily be trial and tribulation, but 40 is always going to be an indicator. Whether it was 37 days or 42, it doesn't really matter. The picture that the Bible is trying to give you here is that this was a time of testing out what the land is going to be, and likely also a time of testing and waiting for the Israelites, right? While they're, they've already been waiting for a long time at Mount Sinai for Moses to come down off that mountain, and the last time they waited for a long time for Moses to come down, they decided to just out, out jump that golden calf. And then now they're going to have more testing. So Israel doesn't do, we should know from our story right now, Israel does not do well with waiting. 
right? We, we tend to not be very patient people. The spies come back to Moses and Aaron, and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran, and there they reported to them the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. And they gave Moses this account. We went into the land that you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. And here's its fruit. It's awesome, right? Now, milk and honey just sounds sticky, or uh, not like the maybe type of thing that you're thinking that you'd like to sit down and drink or eat. But what it really means, and it harkens back to the first murder in the Bible, which is fratricide, brother to brother against Cain and Abel, between shepherd and farmer. Milk comes from sheep and goats. Honey comes most likely from those fruits. Fig, date, syrup, all of that. It probably may not mean entirely honeybee honey, though it could have that connotation too. But it can also have the connotation of something that's from those uh, crops that we're looking for in the land. So they say, yeah, it flows with milk and honey. There's plenty of room for shepherd and farmer without that conflict that we found back with Cain and Abel. It's a good land, and there's enough for all of us. But the people who live there, they can spice continue the report, are powerful. The cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anakta. And the Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. And Caleb silences the people before Moses and says, We should go up and take possession of land for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone with him said, We cannot attack these people. They are stronger than we are, and they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. The rabbis note here that every bit of slander always starts with a bit of truth. It never is like this full outright lie, right? It's, well, sure, there's going to be cities there. Yeah, there's going to be fortified, but, but are there really giants there, like the, these descendants of Anak? Are there really all these things? They're like, the spies come back and say, yeah, the food's good. It does flow with milk and honey, but we shouldn't go. They said the land will, de- will we explore devours those living in it. And that's the warning that the spies come back with. I wonder if at this point Moses is like, I didn't ask you to tell me whether or not we should do it. I just asked you to tell me about the fruit. Right? Like, we don't need your commentary. I don't need you to tell me this is impossible. I was trying to shield them from this sort of bad thinking. Let's just talk about the milk and the honey, and let's look at these big giant grapes. Like, that sounds like a much better deal. And instead, they come back with the land we explored devours those living in it. It devours, it's going to eat us up. What do they mean by that? And why would that be the imagery that they would use? Well, here's an idea. The land of Israel, I'm sorry, I love teaching the Bible, so you're going to have to deal with it for a second. Uh, the land of Israel is often called the land between, because it is between the three continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. Everything has to pass through here. It's a land bridge. It's really the only passable place, traveling place, that you can exercise throughout that area, because it's just desert over here, like impassable sea desert, right? And to the west, it's the Mediterranean Sea. So you want this piece of land. So one idea is, why would they say it devours everybody who lives there? The idea is you're either going to be fighting amongst yourselves, which the Israelites will do, or you will constantly be stuck in a land you Israelites will be the mice and the cats are going to come play. Assyria to the north, 
eventually the Greeks and the Romans, the Egyptians in the south, these people, if you live in this land, you will be devoured, which is exactly what happens in that land of regularity. Egypt is pushing all the way up to Jerusalem, up to Bashan, up all the way to Hatsor, and Dan and further, we've got Assyrians pushing all the way down to Egypt. Everybody's stretching and trying to grab this land in between, and so the spies are not wrong. The land does, in one way or another, sort of devour those that live there, because it's always being pushed and pulled on. Then they continue. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. Do you guys remember the Nephilim? It's a weird, very quick passage in Genesis chapter 6 where they talk about the angels of God coming and mating with the daughters of men. And Nephal means to fall. So it's like the fallen ones. It's something that's sort of like, they're spooky, they're mystical, they're giants, we're not quite sure. And at this point then, the Israelites are all going to come down with a huge fear of giants, which Jason told me the other day is called Fifi-phobia. And so you just freak out, right? You're just going to have complete, like there's giants there, and they're weird, and they're spooky, and we're going to attach them back to this myth in Genesis of these fallen ones. The spies continue on. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we died in Egypt or in this wilderness, like anything, just let us die. And why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they each said to each other, we'll just choose a leader. Let's just go back to Egypt. Take me back to Egypt. Take us back to the slavery we know. They were enslaved there for 400 years. They were brutalized there. They had no freedom. And yet, they would rather choose that than to go and trust God to go with them into the land. Sometimes we just want the evil we know instead of the good thing we don't know. And there are all sorts of ways in my life where I've thought of that, where I have stayed in the place or longed for the thing that I know is not good for me because of fear of the next thing in my Take us back to Egypt. Take us back to this land where we know it will be better for us there. Moses and Aaron are now going to fall face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who explored the land, tear their clothes and save the entire Israelite assembly. Tear your clothes at sight of grief and mourning before God. The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he'll lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he'll give it to us. Only don't rebel against the Lord. Do not be afraid of the people blame we will devour them. Their protection is gone. But the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. And they're begging Israel to see and to trust in the goodness of God. And everything that we've had up to this moment is all this grumbling and complaining and lack of trust of God, lack of trust in God's leadership, lack of trust in God's leaders appointed in the community. And now, here in this moment, Joshua and Caleb and Moses and Aaron are begging the people to go. 
It's good. Trust us. There's something good for you there. And God's protection is not over the people anymore. They are not being protected by God. Their protection is God. The Lord is with us. And the word protection there in Hebrew is shame. It actually is not protect. It's their shame is gone. The shame has departed from the Canaanites. And if those of you have again been in the land, it's hot. It's hot that type of year, that time of year still. It's two seasons, wet or dry. And repeatedly at the lowest place on earth by the salt sea, the Dead Sea, there will be some of the hottest temperatures on earth every year recorded. And the Bible here is saying the shade is gone. They are in a hot, baking furnace. God has departed God's shade from that place. And they are not given that protection anymore. The Bible will use this imagery for God's protection over each one of us regularly. Psalm 121 is an example. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Remember that Israel, as they're wandering through the wilderness, following God, God is with them, cloud by day, fire at night, right? That they are in the presence of God's protection, God's shade. And in Israel, as they'll use this imagery for God, they'll say, hey, sort of like stand right here in Jerusalem, looking and facing north, put your hand right there. That is where God comes from always. God always rises in the east, comes from the east. If you put your hand there, God comes and God's going to be your shade. And the Mount of Olives and that mountain range right there serves as that shading and sheltering Jerusalem from that hot desert sun. And God's telling Israel, they don't have that anymore in this land. I'll be with you. My shame has departed from the Canaanites. And that last portion in there, they actually, it says, and you, it doesn't say, don't be afraid. It says, you have no fear. The Lord is with us. Have no fear. The Lord is with us. Now, if I have some generous and compassionate moment for the Israelites, here's what would have thrown me. If I think that I'm walking into the promised land, if I think that I'm going into a place that God has provided for me, if God's rescuing me out of a place of oppression and difficulty of Egypt, that iron smelting furnace, and God's bringing me into the land of Israel, if that's what's happening, I kind of expect it to be a little bit better than walled cities, big giants, and difficulties. But here in the Bible, this is just throwing everybody, the promised land is going to include giants, battles, and walled cities. That's the land God is sending us to. The land of giants. Is it true? Let's ask. Well, according to the Elmarna letters of the 14th century BCE, these are little uh, sort of cuneiform tablets found down in Egypt, Canaan was an Egyptian province ruled by Egyptian governors and local princes, and it was a geographical and political unit. They're right. There are walled buildings there. In fact, Megiddo, this is an archaeologist's interpretation of what Megiddo would have looked like, these ancient walls of ancient Canaan cities were up to 30 to 50 feet high and up to 15 feet thick. They're not lying. Archaeologists have found all these remains of those Canaanite cities that were Egyptian provinces. Egyptians had people up in those trade routes controlling that. They're fleeing Egypt, right? So like, we don't want to anger those people. They've got connections. We don't want Pharaoh to come back after us. We should just go back there and continue to remain in Pharaoh's service. 
They don't want to go there. There's reasons to be afraid. When we think of the promised land, and I'm sure that they did too, we often think of this, yeah? Hawaii, easy street, pretty beautiful night. That's what I want the promised land to look like. I don't want it to look difficult. I don't want it to be a place where there's battles. I don't want it to be a place where honestly I even have to walk. Right? All of our worship songs, I just can't wait till I get to the promised land. And in no place do we think that will be a battle, that will be a war, I might die there fighting for it, my children and my wives might be taken as plunder, there might be giants. No, no time is that my picture of the promised land. I'm going to take it easy. But actually, the terms promised land and holy land are not primarily used in the Bible for the phrase land of the Bible. The most frequent designation of land is a reminder that it did not belong to Israel. It's almost always called the land of Canaan or the land of Canaanites. These terms might be theologically correct. A land of promise, holy land. But they're not the primary terms the Bible uses for the land. In fact, most frequently the Bible is reminding us of who it used to belong to and what happens to those people. They got kicked out. The holiness of the land, whether expressed or implied in the text, is not an inherent status. It's not like the land is holy no matter what. It's totally dependent on God's decision to be present in the land or to withdraw from the land based upon the behavior of the inhabitants of the land. Israel, this land is not necessarily, just by its innate status, promised to you. It is not necessarily by its innate status holy. It will be holy if I dwell in it with you, if you allow me to live in you, in your midst, according to all of God's design. Then you can be a light to the nations. Then you can bring peace. Then you can do all the things you're supposed to do. Because God is not looking for passive individuals in his work in the world. He is looking for partners. Effort is going to be required. We don't get to just decide we're going to go into this land and just hang out in it passively because God gave it to us because God just loves us extra lots. It's because there's going to be work to do. We have responsibility in this place. And it turns out that Easy Street is often a dead end anyway. God has created us to be a people who have a calling, who have a mission, who have work to do, who have battles to fight. God has called us into good work. And we don't really want that other promise land. We think we do, but we don't. The book of Ezekiel will actually talk about the land. It will say that God searched the whole earth for the land that he had sent Israel to. He chose specifically this one. Why? Because part of what happens when you live in this land, and by the way, the promised land, the holy land, whatever you want to call it, the land of Canaanites, is 70% desert. Because this land is where dependence on God is the key characteristic of the land. You don't get to live in this land without begging God on a regular basis. Whether it's for rain, whether it's for your crops not to fail, whether it's to keep those powers away from the north to the south, to the east to the west. The sea peoples, the Philistines are coming up out of the sea the same time Joshua and the Israelites are coming over. We don't get to be in a land where we don't beg regularly for God to keep the desert just far enough to give us just a bit more, just a little bit more food, just a little bit more shade, just a little bit more rain, just a little bit more protection. The dependence of God is key, and that's why the land God's calling us to. 
because we're supposed to live there, depend on him, follow him, and then as all of the world passes through, from Asia to Africa to Europe, throughout the entire world, as the whole world passes through, then the world will know that there is a God in Israel, because of how we live. So when you go to the land, there will be giants. That's just like a guarantee. There's going to be battles and giants. And we, all of us today, we will have a fear of giants, phobia, right? And I don't know what the giant is for you this week, or this month, or this year, what it is that God is calling you and I to go into fight and to engage in, but we are not free to avoid the battle. What is the big, huge, stinking thing in the room that you think there's no way the people of God, the followers of Jesus, faithful ones, can walk into this world and make a difference in? Do we just walk around all the time and say things like, well, Jesus said the poor will always be with us, so I guess I don't have to do anything about that poverty thing? Or are we supposed to engage? Are we supposed to find ways to love the least of these, to find those who are suffering, to find those who are being brutalized by systems and structures in our world? Are we supposed to engage? Or are we just going to lay back and go, you know what, that battle is just too big. I don't think there's anything I can do. The systems are too corrupt. The giants are too huge. Who can slay these giants? We can slay these giants, and not just that we're called to do it. We are called to enter into the battle. Perspective is everything, you guys. They can, just like the, tw- the ten spies coming back from the land, right? They can sit there, and they can say, the land is full of giants. But the other two can say, but look at the grace, bro, right? Like, there's another thing to look at. Yes, there are wall-fortified cities, but there are good things, too. Perspective is everything in this battle. Don't get it twisted. Fix your eyes on the good thing that God has in front of you. Now, when they walk in there, they come back and they say, you know, we look like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we look the same to them. How do you know? How do you know that they didn't look at you and say, that's a giant that I'm afraid of? How do you know that when the systems of power and corruption and abuse in our world today seem to be thriving, how do you know that they aren't quaking in their boots at the fear that they're this tiny little church in Silicon Valley that's going to say no? No more and not in the name of Jesus. How do you know that they think you're grasshoppers? You might feel that way. I'm not going to dispute it. I feel like a grasshopper. But how do you know they think that? In fact, there's a midrash about this where God talks about, like, pretty midrash, God responds, I take up no objection to you saying we look like grasshoppers to ourselves, but I take offense when you say, so we must have looked at them to them, looked that way to them. How do you know I made you look, how I made you look to them? How do you know how I made you look to them? Perhaps you appeared as angels. Isn't that a fun perspective? Perhaps. You're actually seen as something good that is coming. Hope and light and salt of the earth and a place where compassion and love of God for God, for neighbor, for enemy, love for enemy can come in. How do we know how we're appearing to the others? 
Perspective is everything. Now, oftentimes when we're presented with these battles and entering into this land, we'll say, it's too hard, and then the next thing we'll say is, I don't want to. Right? I just don't want to. But I found that in my life, our best efforts to avoid the battle or the calling often end up looking like this. And actually, I don't know if we have audio for the thing. We don't have audio. Okay, I'm just going to narrate it for you. Alright. This guy, he's like... Even the babies are one of the most dangerous animals in the world, so I built this cave to keep them secure, so there's no possible oil mining. <laughs> he says, even the babies are some of the most secure in the world. It's the dangerous in the world, so I have to build this cage to keep them secure. And then the rhino, the big rhino's like, oh my God. <laughs> I've found in my own life that when I want to avoid the battle, I look like that, right? I build a cage that I think is going to protect me. The world, so I built this cage to keep them secure, so there's no possible oil mining. Oh my God. <laughs> I feel that way regularly. Okay. I don't want to do it, so I'm going to build this wall up, and I'm going to figure out how to build this cage. I'm going to, I'm just going to quarantine God. I'm going to make God stay in there, or make the challenge stay in there, or make my fear stay in there, and it finds a way to sneak back around and get out anyway. I don't get to abandon God's calling on my life, on our lives, just because I don't want to do it. And in fact, after this, they will say we're not going. They are going to try to pelt Moses and Aaron with stones. God's glory will come down. God will say to Moses, let me just annihilate these people. I'll make you, like, you know, my God. Let me, let me, God urges Moses. And Moses is like, no, 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 what will they say about you in Egypt? Think about reputation, God. He, like, appeals to God's vanity in that moment, right? He says, don't, please don't deny, like, don't annihilate us. And God's like, okay, fine, I won't kill you. I'll make a bargain. I'm just going to give you a 40-year timeout. None of these people get to go in and partake in the land. Folks, it's been a slight delay in the time of arrival. We won't be landing for about another 40 years, right? So that 40-year timeout, though, does not make any difference in the realities of the land. They're complaining, and the consequences of their complaint and their lack of trust in God doesn't change their call. And when they get there, the first thing they're going to have to deal with is a giant walled city. And they're going to have to figure out how to work with Jericho. And then Joshua's going to have to leave the land. Joshua's going to try to bisect the land. He's going to leave conquering, you know, battles to the north and south, and they're not going to take and hold at all. And tribes are going to have to move their allotments, and Dan will be for a while down, you know, in the hill country. He's going to have to get all the way to the north. He's not going to take and hold this allotment. There's this wonderful sort of combination of a variety of sayings from Talmud, from Midrash, uh, from the Mishnah, and from text. And it kind of goes like this. Don't be daunted by the enormity of the work. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. You are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to abandon it. You and I might not be the ones to take that hill. We might not be the ones to slay that giant, but we're not free to abandon the call. We still have to go. Even if you want to try to negotiate that 40-year timeout, you're still going to have to. So I just want to tell you, don't despair. There's going to be giants. That's not a surprise. When you're walking into the battle and you see that difficulty, don't give up. Don't despair. You expected a giant. I'm guaranteeing you right now, you will have giants there. But God will be with us. And God will give us shame. And the land is good. 
there will be giants, there will be battles, there will be walls there by cities, there will be difficulties, not all of us are going to make it. But the land's good. It's a good place. God will be with us there. And God will give us shade there. And you can't get out of the call anyway, so I don't know what we're doing. This stands a little bit like what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 4. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is seen is eternal. What is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So here's my word to us all this week. Fix your eyes on him and get ready. Good work to do, y'all. And you, you have no fear. Because the Lord is with us. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we bless you, God, for being with us, for giving us the hard challenge and the difficult places in this world where we have to depend on you, where we have to cry out to you, where it won't be through our own strength or our own might, but because you are with us, because the battle is yours, because you go before us, because you have decided that you want us in these places. And when we are faced with giants and cities and battles and fear, and huge systems and structures of existence. Jesus, help us to remember that you have already won this battle. You have already won this war. We already have victory over all of it in you, through you, through the death, birth, and resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus, we're going to lean into that good news and trust you as we seek to go out to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you. To love our neighbor, to love our enemies, to love the least of these. And Jesus, where we are despairing, help us to feel hope because you actually promised us that there were going to be giants, but that you were going to be with us as well. Jesus, as each person is here today, would you pour out your Holy Spirit upon them in powerful ways? Give us hope, give us courage. Give us bravery. Give us the faith and the trust we need in you to take the next steps required that the world may know there is a God who loves them and cares about them and has a way to bring more of his shalom here on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, go in peace, serve the Lord. Amen. God bless you guys.